All right, we are back for another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today, I hosted Kyle Franz on the podcast, and due to Kyle's uh, graciousness with his time, we actually are going to split this into two parts to make it a little bit easier to digest. Um, Thanks for listening. As always, if you like the podcast, please rate us and write us a review in the iTunes store or Stitcher. And uh, also, if you haven't yet, sign up for the newsletter that goes out every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We uh, write a lot about golf course architecture in it, especially on Fridays. Um, We do this uh, new deep dive portion. So if you haven't signed up for the newsletter, please sign up. And without further ado, here is Kyle France. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Uh, today we are talking with Kyle Franz, a up-and-coming uh, golf course architect. Kyle's most uh, famous work has been his restoration of mid-pines down in the Pinehurst area, and he's also worked with many of the top architects and is currently consulting um, on restorations of many top golden age golf courses, including a Seth Rayner, a couple Ross courses, and a few Styles Van Cleek courses up in the Northeast. Kyle, welcome on. Thank you very much, Andy. Excited to be on. I uh, can't thank you enough for, uh, for inviting me on and uh, looking forward to, to chat about architecture the last week since we started uh, discussing uh, on. Yeah, yeah, excited to uh, talk with you. You got a wealth of knowledge and experience, and and you know, having worked with all these uh, different guys, including you know, Corn Crenshaw, Doak, Gill, Hans, and uh, you know, even Kyle Phillips. It's, it's it's pretty cool that you've gotten to see so much. Well, thanks, appreciate it. You know, I've uh, I've been really very very lucky uh, in my career thus far, and hopefully we'll continue going the same direction. You know, uh, certainly can't thank uh, Tom Doak enough for the uh, giving me the opportunity uh, right out of the gates uh, um, internship at Pacific Dunes out in Bandon, and uh, and all the opportunities I've got from from all of my mentors. You know, Bill and Ben at Pinehurst Number Two, and uh, um, Gil working on the Rio Olympics course. Uh, um, a lot of really fun and interesting courses along the way, both from a restoration standpoint and and new builds. So uh, it's been a very exciting, uh, very exciting uh, run for for somebody who grew up wanting to go in the golf course design business, and uh, fortunately everything has worked out thus far. So yeah, so how did you get into design? You did you know at a young age this is what you wanted to do? I did. Yeah, you know I was uh, as I've joked for many years, I was kind of like the ultimate golf kid growing up uh my uh my mom got me in a uh a membership at a little public golf course a little 1920s era golf course on a very weird piece of ground uh almost like 
to make a long geologic story short, uh, it had like these very long running ridges and valleys everywhere from uh, from a catastrophic flood that had happened eons and eons ago, um, and they had no real uh, irrigation system uh, in in modern terms anyway. It was one of my first jobs was uh, putting on couplers and fairways and in the middle of the night and uh but it gave me an appreciation for you know just good solid routing and uh and fun quirky architecture on on wild weird ground and uh um and this was in western oregon you know a place where you wouldn't expect to find sort of an oddity uh of from a land standpoint um and uh um you know i just kind of went with it from there you know i really uh I really loved playing golf, and I played like 478 straight days once, actually, and uh, um, and just became, you know, interested in architecture. I think how a lot of people become interested in architecture. I think probably the difference is I really generally wanted to write from the very beginning. You know, I would get a hold of, uh, you know, uh, old magazine articles, uh, top 100 rankings, uh, you know, uh, major championship previews, and I just pour over all the information. Went through Tom Doak's books at an early age, um, and then kind of got a hold of a lot of the old classics, um, and just kind of went from there with it. I really kind of decided during my high school years that it was something that that I would really like to do, and uh, you know, I uh, I would meet people and just uh, they'd be kind of amazed that I knew as much about architecture as, as I did for having never been anywhere as a kid. You know, I met some guys that had played at, at Pine Valley, uh, and were not far from lived not far from there and uh, they actually sent me like a scorecard and, and a map of the golf course so uh, I would just you know just just uh, absorb information just like uh, just like a lot of kids collect baseball cards you know uh, in your youth and uh, so I was I really wanted to go into it I just didn't really quite know how to do it you know I was uh, working on the maintenance staff of, of my, my home course which you know again it was a very limited budget sort of place and uh, um and I asked uh, I asked Tom Doak for 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 a job at Pacific News and really begged and begged for it and uh, and he was nice enough to uh, to give me a shot. You know, uh, I was I was studying turf management in school at that point and didn't know whether I should jump into landscape architecture at Oregon or stay with turf at Oregon State. And uh, um, but I. Uh, it all it all kind of came in line for me when I worked at Pacific Dunes. It really gave me a, a very vivid understanding of the business and uh, um, really what it takes to really do great architecture right from the get-go. You know, I mean, it's obviously one of the best pieces of land that anybody's been handed in the last 80 years, Pacific Dunes. But um, uh, what really what really uh, I was impressed with was uh, was the level of detail. You know, obviously I knew that Tom was an exceptional designer, having read his 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 books and, and followed his career through through the 90s as he made the ascent of getting a project like that. Um, but I was enormously impressed with the with the talent and uh, level of dedication of of the other guys that were on the project, like Jim Rabina and uh, and Brian Slonick, you know, his associates, and the fact that you know they they also would kind of throw you know a young guy like me out there to. Uh, you know, give stuff a shot and uh, and to really contribute right out of the gates. It was a lot of fun because, you know, I I studied architecture so closely um, to an obsessive compulsive sort of level, um, but to uh, to get out there and, and Tom would you know let me shape this or or let me you know handle the grassing on that and uh, um, and just you know throw ideas. You know, I was just a 19 year old kid, but you know, Tom would Tom was 
always absorbing ideas from everyone. You know, he was uh, he was fun to work for like that, and the fact that uh, he always has obviously, you know, he's one of the best architects ever. So he always has a very strong vision for where everything's going and what he wants to do. But he'll just throw throw people out there and uh, see if they come back with something uh, better. And if it's good, they'll uh, he'll go with it. And if if not, it'll come up with something better. So it was a lot of fun to work for Tom right out of the gates. It was uh, kind of a surreal experience to uh, be out there on my, my first internship and, uh, uh, you know, be standing there in a hole and ask my opinion, you know, uh, just as, as a young guy, you know, uh, certainly, again, certainly well studied on architecture, but maybe not with the uh, experience of having got to get out and visit and study golf courses just being a, uh, a teenager. So mm-hmm. that's how I kind of got started with it. Uh, you know, I started working for Tom and worked at Stonewall in Pennsylvania and uh, then went down, down to uh, Barn Boogle Dunes and uh, got to kind of expand my role on, on projects working working down there. And you know, it was really an amazing experience. I mean, working on two of the three highest rated golf courses built in the last eight years was pretty crazy. Yeah. Like, oh, we're going to do this every year? You know, uh, and obviously it doesn't work out that way. Uh but it was certainly a lot of fun, so I'll always be uh, very appreciative of the opportunities that Tom gave me to to get into the business and, and take a shot at it. Sometimes uh, I think it's probably a lot of people who have, have tried take taking this route have realized, you know, the hardest part is almost the first the first getting your first opportunity at it. So yeah, it's a uh, that internship program Tom has is it's a uh, you know it's a great it's pretty cool to see how many of the young architects like yourself have come out of it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, you know, getting that hands-on experience so early is, is critical to, I imagine your development as an architect. So you mentioned playing golf 478 days in a row. Yep. Right. When, when did this happen? And (laughs) I mean, it was, uh, it was when I was age 13, 14, I believe. Uh Yeah right in there you know, my mom got me this you know this membership at this little public golf course and uh and i just went and i just played every single day and not all of them were like nine or 18 holes but uh um i got it at least you know it's oregon winter weather uh western <laughs> oregon it rains a lot but it doesn't snow very much so uh so i just started playing and playing and and i i think part of it is some of this one point in there i was like oh, i gotta keep the streak alive i gotta play three or six holes today um, but, uh, yeah, finally got, we finally had a snowstorm February of 95 that busted up the streak. So, so that's when it, it ended with a snowstorm. Yep. Finally, finally just couldn't go out there and do it. I well, probably could have snuck in one more day, but it was starting to spit with snow out there. I'm like, I think I'm done. <laughs> it was a good run. So what, what did but, it uh, feel like, right. like the, the first day without golf or you just not knowing what to do? I'm just trying to think. You know, I think, uh, well, when you grow up in western Oregon, you know, it's kind of a novelty when it, when it snows because it doesn't really do it very much because of the sort of moderated oceanic climate. climate. So uh, I was probably looking forward to being a 14-year-old kid and just getting out and, uh, uh, you know, going out and doing some cookies with my friends in the car, something my mom probably wouldn't have wanted us to do. But uh, joking aside, yeah, you know, uh, uh, it was tough for my streak then. I was hoping that it was going to make it 500. So. That's, I mean, that's crazy. I, I wonder what the like the longest streak anybody's ever had is. It's got to be close. Uh, there's got to be somebody out there that's cracked a thousand. I, you know, it's amazing to me some of the uh, the folks at clubs that uh, that I work at. You know how how uh, dedicated they are out there every day, 
rain or shine, does it make any difference? Who knows? It's a good question, though. Yeah. I said I grew up working at a club, and one guy, an older guy, showed up the same exact time every single day. It was, right. it was like at 9.50, I'd have his bag on a cart, like ready for him to go to the range. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. 10 yep. o'clock. Those those are the people that you really love to, to do this work for, you know, the people that really get out there and appreciate it. You know, uh, the greatest golf courses in the world, you know, I've always made the analogy that uh, um, it reminds me of, of uh, how one of my professors in, in school described great writing, you know, that uh, um, in great writing, there's not a word or phrase or, or, or any detail of the writing that isn't uh, absolutely perfect. Um, that, that, isn't just perfect in literal terms, but it, it kind of takes it all to a, it's a higher level. And that's the way that I look at great architecture. When you think of, you know, Royal Dornoch or uh, Piners Number no. 2, the old course, every little hump and every little bump out there, uh, you know, arrives at, uh, at making it all nearly perfect. You know, you're always learning something about the golf course, so to speak, you know, uh, and all the interesting shots you can, you can find out there. And, you know, as designers... I always kind of, you know, take a step back and wonder, it's like, how much do people really, really notice the, the intricacies that we try and put into architecture like that? You know, I think that's one of the strengths of, uh, um, that I marvel at, you know, what Pacific Dunes was, uh, the, the, the quality, the details, uh, and trying to get it to, you know, that level, the fun shots around the greens, et cetera. You always wonder how much people really, uh, uh, catch on to that sort of stuff and uh, but you know that the people that play every single day like that and really even if they're interested in architecture or not they'll slowly figure out all those cool little things that we uh that we throw into the uh the equation um so i especially really enjoy um doing the design work for for those kinds of people you know my favorite events here at uh mid pines pine needles are they have the u.s kids in the summertime and uh you know uh so the golf courses are basically invaded by, you know, 10 to 15-year-old kids for an entire week. And I always really enjoy it because I hope that the kids are as excited about what they see out on the golf course, Ross's great old designs and the work that we have put into restoring them, that they are really impacted the same way that I was when I was a kid, you know, in high school or, or before that, like the period that we were talking about. Uh, um, when I go to cool places, you know, USGA caliber courses like Portland Golf Club um, and uh, you know I, I really hope the kids enjoy it the way that I did going to those but even just the people you know day to day that uh, that come and, and play golf at Mid Pines Pine Needles uh, you know a guy by the name of uh, a Jay Mickles will become one of my uh, my best friends to play golf with you know he's an older gentleman maybe 65 or 70 or so and Jay plays every single day he played all the way every, almost every day through the uh um, Mid Pines restoration, so he was always watching what we were doing, and uh, I got to know him kind of through that. Um, a lot of guys like that, whether it's you know Chris Bowie, the great writer of Ross's work, or Rand Morrison, who lives here in town. Um, you know, those guys are always coming out and playing, and it's really fun to uh, um, to hear their feedback on on the work that we do, and uh, um, and for them to to enjoy it. You know, uh, it's pretty cool. So Mid Pines was, you know, you kind of your first shot. You know, what was um, the? I, I guess not your first shot, but you know, first like major um, restoration. And from all signs, I haven't been down there. Everybody raves about it, and uh, first time it's ever been in a, a top one hundred list after the restoration. Tell 
tell us a little bit about the that project and um, you know kind of what where the course was and where you've taken it to and you know it it you know the things you learned during the project sure well uh how we got kind of started with it was um um well i obviously worked on the restoration of, of piners number two as we discussed briefly before for core and crenshaw so i was really really uh really in a good place to take on a project like it you know i did a lot of research in the in the tough archives while we were working on number two and i was always noticing mid pines uh and uh you know john jeffries kevin robinson bob Ferrum, you know the the pinehurst uh uh maintenance maintenance guys had suggested I go see mid pines uh since the greens had really never been changed very much only a couple of greens have really kind of been tinkered with at all so it was a great opportunity to go see Ross's original uh original work uh here uh since you know Piners number two greens had obviously been switched to USGA greens at some point so they've been reshaped but they're still very close to the uh the originals but mid pines you can go see what we call the final float the final raking and perfect detailing of what Ross's style was exactly exactly like, so I would come over and, and, and look at the golf course during the number two work, um, and got to know uh, Kelly Miller and the Miller Bell McGowan family. Uh, kind of got started just kind of talking about the golf course. You know, I'd I'd found many photos of of Piner's number two in the Tough Golf Guys from the 1920s and 30s. You know, uh, the period when uh, uh, the golf course had been uh, completed by Ross and uh, was really just very impressed with what I saw in modern terms and especially back then. So I started speaking with Kelly about uh, you know, the opportunity to, to try and restore it. They wanted to do a uh, a uh, greens regrassing project and switch them from from bent grass back over to reed grass as they originally were. And uh, you know I just kind of started you know throwing ideas at them of what they could what they could do. Um, I did some several photoshops of what I of what the holes originally looked like. You know, re-adding the uh, the sand hills, sand hills details. You know, the uh, the natural bunkers and uh, uh, sandy hard pan areas around the holes, which were such a, a unique feature that we obviously re-added with number two. And I think they were pretty intrigued to to try that as as much as as possible and would be practical for the uh, for the course. Um, you know, as I always say, it's it's kind of like Pine Valley, but playable for the for the normal person. Uh, since it's not not as uh, you know penal. You know the, uh, the ground is so much firmer here in the sandy areas. So, you know, uh, we just kind of started talking about it, and uh, and uh, they really liked the photoshops and my ideas for for what uh, the holes looked like or I thought they looked like, and uh, started throwing together plans for it in that autumn of I guess it was 2012, um, and uh, just kind of went from there with it. Um, we. Uh, we broke ground just after Thanksgiving that uh, year, and I think the thing that was most intriguing to me about the golf course is, is while it's the same general style as uh, Piner's number two uh, and Ross's work here, he tried to make all of the golf courses that he worked on here a little bit different stylistically. While the bunkers were all natural and rugged and had the sandy hard pan areas, uh, you know, the overall style of each golf course is a little bit different from the other one. So I really, really um, worked hard to to draft off of that, of his original concepts and get them to work for, for modern play. So, uh, a lot of fun, you know, a lot of our, uh, of restoration architecture is, is one part, uh, 
um, design, and the other part is kind of archaeology and trying to figure out what was actually in, in the original designers' heads. And uh, um, it's been a lot of fun to do that on on all the golf courses that I've worked on here now. Yeah, I really want to get down to that Tufts archive. It's a see. That's one of the cool things about Ross is how much of his work is preserved and, and you know, kept in, in a singular place. I, I wish that was yep. the case with more architects. Um, in terms of, you know, having worked with a lot of Ross courses, what what would you say is kind of the most underappreciated aspect of Ross's design career? Boy, that's a, that's a difficult question. Uh, I think for the fact that, uh, you know, his design style varied so much during the the course of his career, you know, his New England work is completely different to his work in the in the uh, um, in the Sand Hills um, and and in other portions of the country. Um, you know, I would say that for me, as a as a thirty thousand square or a thirty thousand foot uh, answer to the question, you know, I think the thing that that probably is is underappreciated is I think a lot of times when you sit down and watch a major championship that's played on a Ross course or what have you, everybody will hit on, like, kind of the obvious details. Um, you know, if they if they played Oakland Hills, they're going to talk a lot about how severe the greens are. If they play Pinehurst number 2, they're going to talk about how great the recovery shots are around the greens. What I always marvel at in Ross's work is his ability to have come up with the exact right concept for each hole on the ground that he's given. You know, uh, um Obviously, a great router of holes, always finding interesting ways to, to attack the landscape and, and find good green sites, find uh, the right place to put the holes where it's a comfortable watch, walk and all the holes are interesting and varied. Um, but the thing that I really like the most about, especially his work here, is that, uh, that he, again, he was just always finding the right answer for, uh, for the design of a hole given the, the, uh, given the ground in front of him, you know, uh, a great example is like the the 17th and uh, 12th holes at Mid Pines, which are two holes that are within 120 or 30 yards of each other, but they're they attack the landscape in two really interesting ways. The the 12th hole is a mid to short to short of par four with a, a fairway that sort of s- slopes sharply from the right down to the left hand side. Um, the green is canted on a 45 degree angle is such that you really need to hit your tee shot on the left-hand side of the fairway. There's a big front-right bunker that really makes uh, approaching the green from the right-hand side of the fairway a nightmare. It's almost impossible to hold in some conditions. Uh, so what Ross did is he set up a tee shot where you could hit a nice big sort of swing draw that would sort of hit in the landing area and kind of bound down to the honey spot in the far left-hand side of the fairway, the side of the fairway that you need to be coming in from. Only, you know, because of the orientation of the green, you wind up having hit this nice little draw down to the landing area. Then you really need to be able to hit like a straight shot or even like a little baby fade off of this hanging line uh, where um, it becomes a very awkward shot. So the bottom line is the player that has all the different kinds of shots really has the advantage in the hole. The 17th hole is almost the dead opposite, but again, utilizing the same kind of concept where the land is gently going down into the right in the landing area in the tee shot so you know a, person, a player that can hit a fade on the tee shot really has kind of an advantage and then uh you know the, the second shot all there's a just a big old big old hillside where the bunkering front left of the green that uh um you know really really encourages you to try to hit a draw into the green side again 
opposite, you know, off of a uh, off of a kind of a, a hanging lie where the ball is going to be a little below your feet, and the tendency always is going to be to miss it from the right. Far be it, you know, let alone trying to hit a draw off of. So, you know, he was just always coming up with, I think, the right answer for a piece of ground. You know, he's a great router, and he had just an uh, a real a really a real knack for uh, for finding the right concept for the hole, and you get 18 different looks all the way through. You know, you're always he was just really creative in finding the right answer, and then 18 in a row of them, the right answer, uh, all to uh, all to arrive at uh, a golf course that uh, is really varied and cool all the way through. All of his best work, I think, has that kind of hallmark uh, in the designs. Yeah, that's the thing that impresses me most with Ross is the the variety in his designs, but also you know just how he created these subtle little features that you know really good players notice but for the for the average player it's pretty easy to navigate and you know they aren't worried about a hanging lie and having to try and hit a you know a fade into you know from a draw lie they they feel like they have a chance when they're in the fairway so i think you know that's that is one of the things i think that's underappreciated with ross absolutely you know and uh you hit the nail on the head uh all the all the things that i described are like grade a architecture stuff you know the stuff that is really good thinking man's kind of architecture um but the holes always worked really really well for for every skill set of player you know whether it was a player of his caliber you know he was at one point one of the best players you know in the country um you know he finished in the top i think 10 in, in a u.s open yeah uh but the holes always worked very very well for for the average player and that's why you know i really think that that he had is one of the best impacts of anyone in the history of, of American golf. You know, if you think about uh, his 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 work throughout his life, you know, having done that many hundreds of golf courses, you know, he made it possible to take really good sound architecture to the masses. Uh, you know, any little town that just wanted a cool little club, they were going to have it. And uh, you know, I think that uh, I've always actually admired that about Ross. I think. Sometimes people have have made the criticism of Ross that that he was took on so many projects and he he took on so much work that it didn't have his hand in in all of the designs. You know, it would have been impossible to travel around to do that in that day and age of, of train travel. But I actually think that that's something that I admire the the most in him is is that he had he didn't seem to have really an enormous ego. You know, he's a man from humble beginnings in Scotland and uh, immigrated to the United States and it and build himself to have this massive business. So many employees at one point, uh, um, you know, this, at one point I, I believe I've heard that he had like 3000 yeah. employees at extension, just the, if you counted all the laborers on all the projects and everything that was going on. Um, but you know, he, he, he wasn't afraid of, of if a golf course didn't turn out, you know, as good as, as, uh, as Piner's number two, you know, when he was at his best and he was and he was on the ground, he was capable of designing as good as anyone who has ever lived. But um, he wasn't really, you know, he didn't really have an enormous ego. You know, he he wanted to do good golf courses that people could enjoy everywhere, and, and that's why I think that really he did have one of the largest great impacts in the history of of the game in American golf. If you think about, you know, the most uh, influential people in, in in American golf, you know. You, obviously Bobby Jones and, and Nicholas and Palmer and, you know, the impact that Tiger Woods has had in, in the modern age. Um, you think about 
who's really next in line behind that. I think it's pretty obvious. It's always been pretty obvious to me is, is Donald Ross for all the golf courses he did in so many different states, so many different places. Again, he really brought uh, good to great architecture to the masses in the United States. And I think that's... I mean, uh, also, uh, like, the agronomy. Absolutely. Yeah, he brought like, the whole package to the uh, the equation. You know, his background of... Uh, of having worked on, on maintenance and, uh, you know, understudied for, for old Tom in St. Andrews and Carnosti and, uh, and then obviously growing up in, in Dornick, um, you know, he, he was the full package. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. So, uh, in terms of, of Ross courses, what would you say is the most, uh, underrated or underappreciated golf course in his portfolio? Ooh, boy. That's a that, tough that you've seen. Yeah. Well, I would, I would really, really have to think about that one. Right. <laughs> I feel well, like I would probably, I probably would be cutting somebody off at the knees who uh, deserves a bit more, uh, more credit. Uh, you know, um, um, there's, there's so many good ones. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, just a couple that come to mind are is Mid Pines. I think it's a great golf course that really flew under the radar for a long time. I really like Plymouth in, uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, it's a really cool course that kind of flies under the uh, the radar, but again, I feel kind of bad just sort of throwing those two out there because there's so many of them that uh, um, that inevitably it's uh, it's sort of like uh, being asked, "What's your favorite child?" You, know, you can't you can't really do that, you know. Uh, um, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure there's several great Ross courses that I still myself have never been to. There's quite yeah. a few of them, so it's yeah. a. It's always a and good. That really kind of gets back to the previous point. Is, is you know he left such a deep, deep talent pool of, of great golf courses that uh, um, some of them are, are are still great. Some of them could use a nice little restoration, like we did with Mid Pines and and Pine Needles. And uh, um, <laughs> there's just such a deep talent pool. Uh, really very, very impressive. Yeah, if you you know if you I always look for Ross courses when I travel. If I if I don't know where to play, it's always like a good. You know, especially on the East Coast or, you know, he did a lot in the Midwest. But, like, if you're looking for a place to play, you know, let's see if there's any public uh, access Ross courses. And, they're, you know, a lot of them aren't in perfect shape, but, you know, they they're, they still have such good, like, simple architecture and it's easy to play and they're usually very affordable. So, you know, that's always, I think, I think a good way to, to travel. Absolutely. And I think the one that probably jumps to mind that it ama- it always amazes me that it stays as far under the radar as it does, and it seems to have taken a nice little jump in the rankings the last few years, is Essex in Massachusetts, you know, in Manchester by the sea, up north mm-hmm. of the city. Um, that golf course blows my mind. It's just such a cool Ross course, and, uh, you know, it always kind of amazes, amazes me. It's like, how is this one a lot, not a lot more famous? One that I also really like... Um, is a place that I went and just briefly did some work for, for Gil Hans at a, a couple of years ago is Sakonet in, uh, in Rhode Island. Uh, short golf course, I think it's only maybe 6,200 yards long. So basically pretty well preserved, probably about what it was when it opened, and uh, some fantastic views out over the, uh, the waterfront uh, right along the shore there, and some really, really neat greens. Uh, I don't want to start quoting holes in case I forget get to the right get a number wrong but there's some really really neat holes out there and some some great overwater views this is a really neat golf course that's where ross made his uh 
his summer office at, actually. Uh, he spent, obviously, his winters down here in the Pinehurst area, and uh, and then spent his uh, a lot of his summers up along the shore in Rhode Island. Uh, really cool That's, course. It's a pretty good spot to spend summers at. It's, uh, that, that I've heard that my buddy uh, has sent me a bunch of photos from there, and it looks so cool, and it's got a lot of little quirk, but, you know, it's a shorter course, but it, it defends par because of those greens and um, just the, the subtle little design features. Right. Yep. Um, so, it, you know, having worked for, I would say, you know, if, if you said Gil, um, Tom Doak, and then Bill and Ben, you know, the, you know, three most, three of the most forefront architects of today. Tell, tell us a little bit about, you know, some commonalities that they share that make them so great. Well, I think the, I think the thing that obviously they all share is an appreciation for, for classic architecture and the do it yourself mentality, you know, uh, uh, the design build, uh, philosophy. Um, I mean, obviously all of them have a encyclopedic knowledge of, of great architecture and how they would like to approach it, um, you know, from, from routing on up and, and, and building really cool natural stuff or classical classical material. You know, I mean, any time that, that any of them are deviating away from anything that's completely 100% natural, it's always going in an interesting old kind of quirky way. You know, I think a Gil, one of Gill's strengths is his willingness and uh, interest in building sort of like uh, you know, classic New England architecture or classic English countryside architecture uh, with a little more kind of quirky sort of, uh, you know, stuff in there. Um, but I think it all comes back to, to the, the general philosophics of, of they're going to get out there and they're going to build great architecture in the field with their own shapers, their own finished guys, and the hands-on uh, approach to the work, you know, uh, and they all go about that a little bit differently, you know. Uh, in the case of Gil, I can pretty much guarantee wherever Gil's at right now, it's on a bulldozer someplace. You know, I mean, that's where, that's his happy place, I think. I think he really, uh, you know, he's, he's a, a great a great architect, a great, uh, a great marketing architect. You know, he's so great in front of the camera, but I think, uh, and he's so good with all the client and relations and uh, all the emails and all the business of being an architect. It, it, he always amazes me how hard he works. I mean, he's a person that generally spends 10, 10 hours a day on a, on a bulldozer, and then he uh, goes and he does emails and plans all night long. You know, uh, it's very impressive. Um, but uh, that's why I think it's kind of his happy place is to get out there in the field and build stuff himself. Uh, whereas as Doak was also a, a shaper back in his younger years working for Pete Dye. Um, but he goes about the work in the field in a slightly different manner where, uh, you know, he likes to sort of like walk around and hover over the proceedings and uh, work on multiple things at once where he can jump over to the guys working in this set of bunkers over here or building this greens over here and, uh, um, and he has a you know a, a very deep talent pool of shaping uh, design associates that are that are perfect for that you know uh, they could probably all be designers on their own uh, but uh, they uh, they are incredibly good shapers and uh, and he utilizes that back and forth dynamic uh, very well. Bill is the same sort of way where where he spends a lot of time kind of walking a property and uh, and you know throwing a bunch of different ideas around and coming up with what he really wants to do and what he thinks is going to work very well. And then he's actually on a, on a sand pro at the very end of the process, 
finishing the greens himself, which is something that Gill does as well. But that is really, you know, Bill's Bill's main kind of creative uh, construction portion of the process is, you know, he he field kind of directs the the building of the green and then uh, and then actually finishes it himself. Um, so, you know, they all go about you know the work slightly differently, uh, and uh, and I think that's the you know to kind of complete the point on Bill. He spends more time, I think, walking his projects than uh, than any anyone. You know, he's he's constantly on site and just kind of walking and throwing ideas around of what what he would like to do. Uh, so, while uh, while the results come out in the end really very similarly, uh, you know, um, uh, they all go about it in, in, in slightly slightly different ways. But all of them rely on uh, you know good, solid uh, design build theoretics and, and having, uh, you know, talented staffs of, uh, of guys to uh, get out and do the work and, and, and are as passionate about architecture as, as they are. Yeah, I, I mean, the design build um, concept just makes so much more sense to me than the, the contracted out. It, it, seemed, it just like, you know, all the parties are aligned and it, to me, it, it, it I don't know why you would draw plans and, and, and then hand them to somebody else to interpret your plans. Um, now, I know there's it's not that simple, but <laughs> it, it just seems like if, you've got, if you're doing the plans and you have, you know, the guys working for you, it, it's going to, you know, there's one less person involved, and that's always a good thing when you're, you know, trying to do something special. Absolutely. It makes sense, all the sense in the world across the board, and, you know, Getting back to the beginning of the conversation, that's really what I learned right out of the gates from Tom. You know, I mean, uh, I knew what good architecture is, and uh, and I was able to contribute contribute immediately because I had a good eye for things. Um, but what kind of blew my mind is, is just how much he was out in the field, how much, you know, Jim Rabina, Brian Swanick, you know, they were, you know, Brian was shaping every single day. Jim was in and out, shaping this, shaping that. Um, the atten- And these are, you know, again, guys that, could design on their own you know the attention to detail uh was uh was pretty impressive to to watch and to see and uh and to create a process you know uh just going back and forth in terms of discussions of what would happen what was implemented um and that was the beauty of tom you know is that uh you know uh he didn't care what the best idea was or who it came from uh you know that's what was going to happen that's why i was quite happy to ask uh you know uh even down to a 19-year-old kid that was just a golf golf course and golf uh, golf nerd, what what I thought, you know, uh, and that interaction uh, um, that that doesn't happen if if you're just merely handing a set of plans uh, to a contractor. You take a bunch of really really talented people that uh, that know what's good and, and, and know what'll work, and you throw them all out there and uh, just run it through the uh, run it through the process and see what you come out come up with on the other side. I don't see how anybody could uh could expect to get results that good uh merely from handing plans to a contractor and and the thing is 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 not only uh is the design build philosophy you know better in terms of architecture it's also a lot a lot more practical for the client you know the more that you're eliminating outside contracted costs to where things are either a just not turning out very good or as good as it can or uh or they're having to be rebuilt multiple times to uh, get it to all finally get to a, a, a good fi- uh, a good place in the finish line. Uh, you know, it just it just expands the price tag. You know, mm-hmm. uh, 
um, by eliminating the middleman and uh, just getting out there and doing it yourselves. And, and I think that that's, you'd have to ask Tom himself, but I think that that's something that uh, um, he, he realized that degree of, of craftsmanship uh, um, working for Pete, and I think that Bill also did. Um, and they had their own ideas about what they wanted to do that were slightly different from Pete, but they recognized the value of uh, approaching the work like that, and uh, and and they just kind of followed suit and uh, and even took it to to another level of uh, of hands-on hands-on construction, and that's been by virtue it's been handed on to to guys like myself uh, who have worked for them. You know, uh, I do my own shaping just like Gil does because I think it's the most practical way to go about it you know if uh if i have a lot of different projects going on at once i might uh um i might you know just spend time jumping around uh uh you know field directing a little bit how i described uh uh bill and ben and, and tom working as opposed to being on the machine like gill is um but you know again it's the same same difference you know i've, I've learned how to be efficient and uh and practical and, and save clients money while getting the right product and I've even kind of, you know, kind of tried to take what I've learned from the strengths of, of all of their personalities and uh, and utilize it to hopefully wind up with good good results myself. Uh, so I've definitely learned a lot from watching watching how they conduct themselves and uh, and uh, the differences in their little styles that uh, that uh, that they utilize to achieve good results. Yeah, I, I think that collaborative approach. I something I learned. I you know, growing up caddying was like. You know, somebody I'd caddy for, they'd be at 18 handicap, and they'd say something about the game of golf, and it would it would like make a lot of sense to me. And at the time, I was like a you know scratch or better player, and um, like that's the thing about you know just life in general. You can learn something from everybody. So having the collaborative approach on site, I mean, it's not going to hurt you, you know. It's uh, absolutely. So um, you're currently consulting on you know. A bunch of golden age courses. You're a uh, you're a golf nerd, as you as you say, just like me. And uh, and you you know you you've got kind of a vast array of architects. Like in terms of golden age architects, um, who do you think flies under the radar? Uh, you know whether they're a regional guy or that there are great architects that you know you don't hear as much about as like a Ross, a Tillinghast, or a Rayner, McDonald. Good question. You know, one person that I that I really don't think has ever really gotten their full credit and due with the with the quality of the work and all the places they have that they worked at, uh, which was HS Colt. You know, I think that obviously he's a household name in architectural circles, but I think that most people sitting and watching a Masters telecast uh, every year, they're they know they know all about Alistair McKenzie by now, and and most everybody you know, knows quite a bit about Donald Ross just for the iconic effect that he's had in, in golf and architecture and famous places like Piners, number two. Um, but, uh, but Colt, you know, all the different places he worked at uh, is really impressive list. You know, places where uh, nobody really these days puts, puts together a good solid uh, lineage and understanding of, of the, the history of, of great courses like Mirfield, for example. You know, uh, just how much of that was his design work, Colt's work there. Um, you know, I think uh, I think uh, the more one digs into his his career and history, uh, the more one realizes he's a pretty pretty smart guy with a, a lot of uh, a lot of really cool work all over the place. 
um, whether it was, you know, just his, his input at Pine Valley. And, uh, but the same could be also be said of, uh, of, you know, George Thomas, you know, I mean, uh, um, being as amazing, he really didn't do that many golf courses. Uh, yeah. I think that, uh, he doesn't really get as much credit as he should, even though the, um, you know, the work that he did at its best was some of the best architecture in the history of the game. You know, uh, I think LA country club is, is, is a, is a prime example. You know, a lot of people don't realize that, that his original concept for the golf course was to, uh, it was essentially a course within a course concept, so to speak, where the golf course could be set up one day, um, to play as like a, uh, you know, a really, really difficult, you know, par 72, almost 7,000 yard golf course. Um, and then the next day it could be set up to play is like a, is like a quirky and crafty little, uh, you know, par 69 or par 70, 6,100 yard golf course. And the architecture all worked at varying degrees in between, you know, uh, um, so that you were getting completely different golf courses. You could play the same day just by moving around the whole locations. That's what kind of made it all work is, you know, they'd set the short course and set a bunch of really wild tough pins and then, uh, um, uh, vice versa for, uh, um, for the for the longer course, but all all while the architecture still worked and the players had to really think about what they were doing out there, where they were trying to hit tee shots to get good angles into greens, and uh, where and where not to miss greens, all the, all the bells and whistles of, of great architecture, you know. So, um, as but you know, generally a a, a, a well known famous architect, you know, if you're going to go into more uh, obscure architects, you know, uh, one of the one of the guys that we have talked about a bit. Um, you know, before before the podcast, you know, uh, uh, A.V. McCann, who did a lot of work in the Northwest, where I grew up, is an American, an American architect, really did some great quality work that I, I don't think people really realize how good it was. And a lot of it's the fact that, you know, maybe time hasn't really been as, as friendly to their work as, uh, um, as it should have been. You know, a lot of his courses have been changed or, uh, or too many trees planted or, or just the usual things that happen over the span of, of 100 years. You know, greens get changed, various things, all the things that happen. Um, and then, you know, in the in the UK, um, I always really, I always like really like James Braid's work. You know, there's a lot of, of great Braid golf courses, mm-hmm. um, and there's also some neat ones that kind of fly under the radar. And I always, I always found a lot of those to be some of the more entertaining golf courses that I went to in the UK. And a lot of them would uh, be just kind of. Uh, Right under the notice is a lot of the time of uh, of, of bigger famous famous places. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a couple examples would be uh, there's a place that's really just up the railway line from Carnoustie uh, called Panmure, which is uh, a course that's kind of easily missed over there. The f- the first couple holes and the last couple holes play across very very flattish uh, kind of farmland, but in the middle of the golf course it all goes out into this very rumpled and wild little dunescape out there uh with some really really sharp crazy dunes and uh and and the holes are really routed in a lot of interesting ways to uh uh to to arrive at some pretty unique holes there's a couple holes on that golf course that i would i would put on my top like probably 50 holes in in scotland uh it's just some really really neat stuff out there um you know a couple other places uh fraserborough golf club uh, in, in northern Scotland, it's kind of like that, where it flies a little bit under the radar. But there was a, a hole out there that I, uh, you know, uh, I I was inspired for an idea that we ended up using in the the Olympic course, the ninth hole, where uh, it was kind of inspired from a hole 
there where there was these two big mounds in front of greens where um, if the pin were kind of front right on the green behind the front right mound, you could actually sort of careen a shot off of the front left mound and curl it around the mound uh, front right of the green. And then if the pin was on the left side, you could do vice versa. You could, if it was behind that mound, you could sort of curl a shot off of it. You know, just some really neat little wild, you know, uh, Scottish Scottish architecture. Same would go for, for Barora up in the far north of Scotland, uh, uh, north of uh, Adornock. I'm pretty sure that's a Bray course as well. Uh, yeah. Isn't that the furthest north course in Scotland or one of them? Not the furthest north, but it is probably the furthest north, like really great, great course mm-hmm. um, of the old of the old architecture. Uh, it's about I think it's about twenty or thirty minutes north of, of Dornoch, and you know, uh, for anybody who kind of knows Dornoch, I mean, even it kind of flew under the radar to a degree through a lot of the fifties and sixties and seventies because it was so far to to get to driving up there. You know, they didn't have the big bridges that cross the. Uh, the Dornick Firth or, or those other firths that you have to cross to get up there. So you had to drive all the way inland, all the way back out, and all the way inland and all the way back to get to those places. So, uh, you know, Dornick kind of flew under the radar for so long that the places north of it, like Barora, you know, those only become, you know, uh, even in architectural circles, kind of household names the last 10 or 15 years. Even a Dorn or a Barora, that's one of the coolest golf courses that, that I saw over there. Really, really neat place uh, right along the, uh, the ocean. Um, so those are, you know, some of the more obscure stuff that I have, have always personally liked in terms of both courses and, uh, and architects. That does it for part one of uh, the Kyle Franz podcast. Part two should be posted uh, within the next 24 hours if you're listening to this. Uh, after, just check out our uh, website, iTunes, or Stitcher for part two, which dives into Kyle's uh, travels through the Great Britain Island, uh, Islands, restorations abroad, as well as some listener questions and overrated, underrated.